0: I'm Peter McCulley. On this edition of Today in BC, it's our Made in BC book club featuring two authors. Here with you is a memoir of love, family, and addiction from author Kathy Wagner. It's the powerful story of a mother struggling to save her son from addiction, and the strength and hope for change that she found in her grief.
1: I don't think a teenager, a 15-year-old, 16-year-old teenager should have to go through years of the trauma of addiction before help can be offered to them. Tristan had some successes during those six years because I was fighting for him and I was advocating for him in the only way that I knew how outside of the systems of care. But there was nothing, and I know that even still today, there is nothing that a parent can do for a child who is not ready to seek help. I think that is one of the greatest shortfalls of our current system of care for people with mental health and addiction issues.
0: David Norwell's A Complex Coast is a soul-searching personal account of his 1,700-kilometer kayak journey from
2: Victoria to Alaska. I just wanted to illustrate and write something that people could be a little bit surprised by. I think when you surprise a reader and you have something interactive within the book, you create a feeling of connection and you get people involved. And it's not just a story that someone else's life, it's now your story. And the whole goal of the book is to help people on their own journeys and inspire people to go out on their own little adventures, however big or small.
0: Thanks for joining us on the podcast
2: today, David. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: In 2014, you were a 24-year-old geography student. The kayak trip You were planning to take from Victoria to Alaska was 1,700 kilometers. Why did you feel it was important to take that
2: trip at that point in your life? To be totally honest, I was unhappy and I was a little bit disconnected with my university experience. I was thinking that it was just all this learning inside this walled campus and that what we were doing wasn't getting outside of the box. I was also struggling with addiction a little bit. I was addicted to pornography at that time. I was thinking that I needed an intervention of some sorts. I wanted to get out, and I wanted to see the coast. We live in one of the richest landscapes on planet Earth. There's over 50,000 islands between Vancouver Island and Glacier Bay, Alaska, and it's just an archipelago of fantastic proportions. And so I wanted to see what it was like.
0: How long did the trip take from start to finish?
2: From Victoria to Glacier Bay, Alaska, it took me 90 days on the water, and that was done over two summers. The first summer I got up to Bella Bella, and then the second summer I got up to Alaska. It took some time and I would get distracted. So like the first summer, I was also going to university and I, I didn't have a job when I left on this trip. I worked for half the summer up on Calvert Island the first summer, and then the second summer I also ended up working half my summer in Sitka, Alaska on a salmon trawler. It was a trip, but also I had to pay for my education when I got back in September. The book is wonderfully illustrated from the
0: front cover to the back cover. I understand you've done illustrations for a living.
2: Perhaps not a lucrative living. but I've illustrated four other children's books, actually, in the Tibetan language. And so that was a really nice opportunity that I had. And this is my first kind of full project that was my own start to finish. So the writing, I even was designing my own fonts. So if you read the book, some of the handmade fonts are my own that I would have just spent countless hours looking at the ratios between A's and B's and C's. The illustrations, it's not really what I do for a living. It's something I do every day though. So I journal. And my grandpa gave me a journal when I was 18. He said, just draw everything so you don't forget. You were a scribbler in school? But yeah, I was a scribbler in school for sure, because I was doodling a lot. And But even if you read the book, like the illustrations are not any sort of masterpiece. They look like maybe a five or a six-year-old has done them. So maybe a little more refined, but there's a juvenile quality. And I think Perhaps that's what makes it a little bit charming. But for me, it was just a way to explain things that I couldn't describe in words. I had so much fun writing this book because it's also an I spy and a maze and a recipe book. And there's a crossword puzzle. And there's just a lot of things that you would say maybe children would be more interested in than adults. But I just really wanted to be playful with it. There's some really creative books coming out right now. I just wanted to illustrate and and write something that people could be a little bit surprised by. I think when you surprise a reader and you have something interactive within the book, you create a feeling of connection and you get people involved. And it's not just a story that someone else's life, it's now your story. The whole goal of the book is to help people on their own journeys and, and inspire people to go out on their own little adventures, however big or small. I think it's important that we try to record whatever we do in in some form. At least if we found some little grain of truth, it's a beautiful process to try to write it down, even if you never publish it. The whole point of this book wasn't to publish it, it was to develop my own qualities and just be a better person. Journaling can be really powerful, especially nature journaling, because it allows us to see things that we wouldn't otherwise.
0: That's what I found appealing about it was the illustrations and the story, of course. I spotted a little note on the inside that says, if you can read this outside, please do.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good idea for all books, but especially books that are about wild harvesting and about creating a relationship with nature. One thing we're struggling with as a society right now is this disconnect, not only with nature, but also with ourselves. We're just so addicted to all sorts of different things, our phones being the most obvious example, but we're in a bit of a tricky situation, I would say, and being outside is healing. Reading outside is just a nice thing.
0: So you're off to Alaska, you're 24 years old. When was your first solo trip in a
2: kayak and how far did you paddle? The first trip I ever did in a kayak was from Oak Bay to Discovery Island for one night. And I had no prior experience in a sea kayak. I had borrowed my roommate's boat and I just paddled out and it was unbelievable. Like I got to Discovery Island and and here I am only maybe not more than a kilometer from shore of this urban environment of Victoria. And all of a sudden there's great blue herons and eagles and fish and just a feeling. And more than anything, you had all this wildlife in this area that's pretty much undeveloped. I just had this feeling like, wow, this is something powerful and this is a part of what it means to be free.
0: Your book essentially is a blueprint for anyone who wants to spend some time in a kayak from the packing list right through to navigation.
2: That was the goal in a way, was that this is the book I wish I had when I was 16 years old. Because it gives a lot of beta and, and how-to as far as kayaking, but also it just gives some translation to those feelings of coming of age and becoming an adult and dealing with a society that's just obsessed with consuming, just going through the checklists of school and then a job and then a family and then a house and then another house and two cars. And I just wanted to make something that might be relatable for other people struggling with some of the stuff I did.
0: When you set out on your way to Alaska, were you as prepared as you thought you would be for the trip?
2: Oh No, not at all. (laughs) I was just a kid with an idea. And more than anything, I left because I was an angsty 24-year-old who just wanted to see what else was out there. I really wanted to answer the question, is this it? it? Is all this pompous urban life and university ivory tower, is that the goal? Once I got out there and started paddling, I was humbled continuously. And I think that's the healing that takes place is you really start to realize your place in this world, just how small you are, how powerful these landscapes are, and how old they are. So I made a lot of mistakes. I lost up sunglasses and shoes, and I burnt my food over and over because I was just cooking on campfires. I started sailing the boat, and so that resulted in me flipping the boat. I probably had f- six times that I flipped. Pretty bad where I had to wet exit. And whenever you wet exit and you're by yourself on the coast, basically your clock is ticking and you're in trouble. So you have to get to shore, you have to dry off, you have to get a fire. And those experiences really held up a mirror to what I was and what this world is.
0: You mentioned burning your food. What would you have taken along that you would have purchased from a
2: normal food store? Most of the food was reclaimed, dumpster dive almost 90% of it, either from the grocery stores in Victoria or at the end of each university semester. All the kids and residents move out and they just empty their whole mini fridge into the garbage. So most of my food was reclaimed that way. Maybe the 10% that I went inside a store and bought perhaps the oats, the rice, some of the other stock supplies. And then during the trip, I was harvesting whatever I could find. And that was a real learning experience too, because I didn't have much experience with seaweeds or fish and shellfish as well. I was harvesting quite a bit of seaweed in the spring. It's bountiful. You can basically just walk out on a low tide and pick the low tide line or the high tide line, throw that in your suit. I was fishing. That was an incredibly humbling experience because to kill another animal for your own sustenance, that really is heavy on the heart. And it really makes you think about this big system. and, And then you go into a grocery store after and you see this row of meat of all different shapes and forms and you realize that each one of those was also a squirming fish or a squirming cow or or whatever it was. I think food is big and I think it's an intersection that allows a a wedge or an opportunity for discussion about some of these bigger issues. The book is using food as a bit of a waypoint for people to come in from all different perspectives.
0: Somewhere along your long journey, both of them, probably more than once you ran into a
2: pot of orcas actually on my second day my first day took me up from basically caboro bay up to piers island and my second day is a beautiful passage and right beside victoria is sansun narrows so just in between salt spring and vancouver island and it is just gorgeous and powerful these huge cliffs i was halfway through this narrow section there's a lot of currents and a part of the resident orcas just came out from behind me and it was about 20 or 22 Within two days, I had been transported into this world, it felt, and I was just crying in my boat because these creatures are just breaching right beside me. And there's no fear in you, at least for me, there is no fear when you see these whales. You just feel an intelligence that is hard to describe. They're with me for 10 minutes, and they're right beside me. And then all of a sudden, they're streaming ahead and they say goodbye. You just get left in a stupefied situation where you realize, wow, there's some other creatures on this planet that have intelligence that is comparable or if not beyond our own
0: not to mention terrified because when you're sitting in a kayak you're basically
2: on the water it's not like being in a boat you're actually halfway in the water your water line is actually below where you're sitting i had to trust i really had to trust because i ran into a lot of whales especially humpbacks too you just have to trust that they know you're there and they know that you're not just a log they're not going to hit a log anyways when they breach and you really did feel like they knew you were there I have one comic strip inside the book, and it's about a humpback whale breaching maybe 20 meters away from my boat, full on half breaching. And before it did that, it came up within two meters of my boat, just breathing right beside me. And I could look right into its eye. And then it dove down. And two minutes later, there's an atom bomb explosion beside my boat of this huge megaton creature just breaching. And I can't help but feel like it was communicating which might sound strange, but when you're out there, it doesn't feel strange at all.
0: You mentioned the book is written journal style, so folks can follow your journey. Day 21, I thought, was pretty interesting. You landed on Minstrel Island, I believe.
2: This is one of the testaments to life on the coast and our history on the coast. Minstrel Island is an abandoned logging and fisheries operation. It's up in the Broughton Archipelago, you go there and the structures are all there of this old hotel and the wharf is there. You can land right on it and it's falling apart in all sorts of different ways. There's vines crawling into broken windows. There's rodents and bears that have been into the space. And you can't help but feel the history of the boom and bust of this coastline. All up and down the coast, there's canneries that have basically collapsed. And whenever I saw them, I really thought to our own society and just wondered, in what year in the future is is Victoria going to be a dilapidated, collapsed civilization just like that? There's a lot of industry that hasn't collapsed yet. Like around Prince Rupert at the time, there was a lot of oil and gas development, these big terminals trying to get gas out to other countries and people standing up against that. I couldn't help when I saw these collapsed industries and then I would go and see these new projects being proposed that there was a lack of foresight in both communities, in our past ancestors and in these present projects proposed by oil, gas, timber, and fish. I'm not saying that I'm against these industries. I just think that it's pretty hard for us to calculate just what the impacts and how these projects will actually manifest. I think there's a lesson there in the coast. David, you mentioned that you
0: were losing things in the kayak, sneakers, sunglasses, whatever it might be. Were you running across anything in the water? or Were you finding things? I'm certain you would be finding things
2: on the beach. Were you finding things in the water as well? You find a lot of stuff on the coast. Ever since the tsunami in Japan, we get a lot of Japanese waste that's floating up. The most kind of treasurable item is the Japanese glass buoy. And these buoys are mesmerizing. But it takes a long time for them to traverse on this current. And they float around in a circle in the North Pacific. And then finally, some wayward wind will watch them to shore. And the one buoy I ended up finding with a friend, and we were on a sailboat at this time, was floating in the water. We fish netted it out. And you can't help but look in this glass ball and, and feel the presence of, of whatever Japanese fisherman was using it for however many years. And actually, the resources on the beaches came in. They were really important. When I got to a beach, one of the things I would be assessing is this a safe or is this a hospitable place is some of the resources. So driftwood, obviously, I sure ran out of water bottles sometimes and I would just pick up one on the beach. And also my whole sailing setup was built out of what I found on the beach. Uh, I would just split cedar into these eight foot poles. That was an A-frame that I had set up on the kayak. And then I would use beach rope to tie it to each end and it would come up and down on pulleys. I found tarps on the beach that I could use, and it's a lot of garbage. It's a little bit disappointing at times, but it can be a tool and you can use it, which is fun.
0: Were you able to keep in touch with people along the way on this trip, both legs, perhaps via a satellite phone, or were you completely cut off? The first
2: half of the trip, when I went from Victoria to Bella Bella, I didn't have any real communication device. When I would stop in communities, I would jump on the internet and email my mom and dad saying, I'm okay. And then the second trip in 2016 from the Bella region up to Alaska, then I had what's called a spot device, which is basically a one-way satellite transceiver. It basically, you have three buttons, and one button says, I'm okay, and the other button says, I'm not okay. And then the third button is the Coast Guard. I had that device, and that was really nice because it also sends a link to a map with a waypoint of where I am. So my mom and dad and my family could follow me up the coast as I went and basically see where I was camping each night. That was really powerful because then I could share the trip in real time and also have an element of safety. To be honest, at one point it didn't totally work because I was in Gustavus and I was safe in the community, but my mom stopped receiving these messages because I thought it was evident. And so she called the Coast Guard. It's a very small town in Gustavus, so I was having dinner with the guy that night. And he said, I got a call from your mom this morning. So you can't stop moms. That's one lesson I learned.
0: It appeared that you stopped at a number of First Nation settlements along the way.
2: The Indigenous peoples on the coast of BC and Alaska are unbelievable. If I ever got in trouble, realistically, they would have been the first responders. The most time I spent was in the Helpsic territory, the area around Bella Bella. I helped with one of their summer camps, building cabins, and they had a traditional berry garden that I was helping with too. This is the ultimate in humility. When you have the privilege to spend time in these communities and learn, and just realize how much we don't know. As a settler on the coast, you have some deep reflections that you need to do, I think. And so I didn't know about just how deep the history of indigenous peoples on this coast and in this whole country was. And so spending time with these first peoples and and just helping with their projects was incredibly humbling and powerful. And I still think about it every day because we have these discussions around reconciliation. It's just something that really takes a lot of work and time, and it takes a lot of stepping back as a settler. Basically, just being open to the fact that your ancestors have basically committed a genocide in one form or another, and it's still ongoing in some form or another. And there's work to be done, and it's going to be really uncomfortable, but we need to do it. Me talking right now is uncomfortable, but it's something that we we have to start saying out loud. I don't think everyone's going to have the opportunity to go into Indigenous people's communities. And so I just feel so privileged and honoured to have had that opportunity. I learned a lot. David, I'm sure you interacted with
0: wildlife. Some probably you wish you hadn't. Did you ever run into bears or otters or were you asleep on the beach in a tent and wondering what
2: is that out there? In the British Columbia part of the coastline, there are grizzly bears on the coast, And there's black bears but as you get farther north into alaska the grizzly bear or the brown bear population increases it's inevitable that you run into them and mostly it would be very harmless and very amazing i would see bears turning over boulders and eating crabs i saw a black bear scraping barnacles one time so these animals and the wolves included all those animals on the coast they really have a different diet and a different ecosystem which they're living compared to the interior. The dramatic example I can tell from that's in the book as well is that one time in Alaska, I was woken up by a grizzly bear and it had its muzzle pressed right into the tent, snuffing. I just screamed as loud as I could. I was terrified. And I just banged on the tent and it was scared. So it just bolted off. I didn't want to get outside the tent, but eventually I thought, okay, I have to assert my territory. So I got outside the tent and I started peeing on on different landmarks. I set up my sail of my kayak on the shore. So it's a scarecrow and I didn't know what to do in that situation, but I probably was just curious, what's this big marshmallow doing on my beach? So mostly I was lucky, I think. And now thinking about it, I didn't have bear spray with me. That's something I should have carried. I was pretty under-equipped in a lot of ways, but there's a lot to eat on that coast. So unless you really go into a place or are really unlucky, or are there later in the fall after the salmon have stopped spawning, it's not like bears are looking to eat humans, but it was pretty humbling to be in the presence of these big creatures. David, when you meet people who have read your book, what's usually the first question you get? They usually ask really practical questions. What about the tides and currents? Or where did you get your fresh water? On the mental side of it, they ask, weren't you lonely? And it's pretty nice, those questions, because they all have answers. The last one about loneliness is something that I think we all identify with. Even if we haven't done some kayak trip for two summers alone, we all deal with it. Sometimes we can be in the most crowded place and feel lonely or by ourselves. I think it's powerful to have that experience where you're in solitude and then you come back to society and you can share a bit of that experience because it's something that's incredibly human and it's something that we're dealing with more and more.
0: It's been six years since you completed your journey. Looking back, how do you think the journey impacted your life moving forward?
2: One thing I can say is that the trip wasn't the golden pill. It didn't save me. I thought really I was going to go on this trip and it was just going to cure me of my kind of wild mind and my addiction and my discontent with modern society. And I'd come back, but really it was just an ego boost. It's a very colonial story. This white guy paddling up the coast in a boat. You're really treading in a kind of familiar narrative that's a bit uncomfortable. When I got home and I started writing the book, I think I really wanted to show that doing these big adventures and going into these so-called wild places, but they're not wild. Like that whole coast has been peopled for time immemorial. So part of my goal with writing the book, and that was when the real exploration came, was realizing that we need systematic ways to help with our mental health. We need real dialogue around some of these issues with reconciliation and with the industries that are operating on this coast and throughout the whole country. Because we are creatures of habit. I think that was the biggest lesson I learned. I am a creature of habit, and I have so much trouble thinking beyond one year, let alone seven years, let alone 20 years, or my grandchildren. It's really tricky for us to have foresight that's not compromised by our desire for instant gratification. When you're in a kayak alone on the coast, your needs are very immediate. You just need to keep safe. That's going to be the same needs that our grandchildren and our future generations are going to have. I learned that there's a big process going on within me and in society, and you just have to do your best to to be kind and be compassionate. And mostly that means being kind and compassionate with yourself, because otherwise you just, you get in trouble. When I didn't take care of myself, when I was out there, I had no one to take care of me. I had one really bad foot infection. I just wish there was someone that could diligently apply polysport and tea tree oil and tell me to keep my feet dry and keep warm. I think it's good for us to go out on our own to learn what we need and also to learn the difference between what we need and what we want.
0: When the Today in BC Made in BC Book Club continues, Kathy Wagner talks about her memoir, Here With You. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Kathy.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Your memoir entitled Here With You is a, a story of love, family, and addiction. When your son Tristan died of an accidental fentanyl overdose, he started experimenting with drugs at age 14. What were the signs that you saw that told you that he was using drugs in the first place?
1: Yeah, there was a progression for sure. When he was first... Experimenting with drugs when he was 14, it started with weed and he was smoking a lot of weed. He was not the kind of kid who kept things secret. He would come home smelling like weed and I'd say, what are you doing? And he would admit to it and just roll with the consequences. He had an older sister who was using drugs recreationally at that time as well. So he didn't see any particular reason not to. When he was 14, he also started using ecstasy He started not coming home on the weekend sometimes, not listening to being grounded or curfews or things like that. Again, he wasn't making any pretense that he was not using drugs. He just figured that's what everybody did. And I was just being overprotective and square. But he didn't actually start to develop signs of addiction until he was 15. By the time he was 15, he was showing behaviors like dropping out of school. He was not coming home. Frequently, his moods had become very erratic. He was often angry, disconnected, and he stopped connecting with the things that he used to love. He loved Taekwondo and martial arts, and he stopped attending. Then I knew it was quite a serious concern.
0: Are there signs in children at younger ages that they might be at risk for substance abuse as they grow older?
1: Yeah, these are some of the things I really wish I knew about at the time. When Tristan was very young, preschool age and early elementary school age, he was already showing signs of being extremely hypersensitive, having difficulty making friends, very empathetic and that he would connect with the emotions of the other people, trying to please them. He also was emotionally dysregulated. He had a hard time curbing his emotions and not expressing them in an explosive kind of way. All of those things together don't necessarily speak to being at risk, but together with a family history of addiction and substance abuse, those things together are risk factors for sure. He also showed signs of being ADD, which he was later diagnosed for. But at the time, I was talking to all of his teachers about all of these things, from his being spacey and not there, to struggling with making friends, to his motions. And everybody would say, you guys just went through a divorce, it's a hard time and he'll find his way. And while all of that is true, I think when there are so many risk factors in place, it would have been wonderful to have had a connection to some sort of resources or understanding to say, hey, here are some ways that we could support you in supporting your son. Here are some ways that are here for you, particularly through the school system, to support kids who are struggling in particular ways and finding community, finding connection, finding a way to fit in.
0: Kathy, your accounts of your son when he was using drugs were very powerfully described with his sudden uncontrollable rages.
1: I think that mood swings are very common in people who misuse substances, particularly stimulants. Tristan's drug of choice was cocaine. For people who use stimulants such as cocaine or crack or meth, mood disorders is part of their environment, it's part of the world, and part of the world that people who love them have to experience. As I mentioned, Tristan wasn't particularly regulated with his moods anyway, even at the best of time. He had to work really hard to refrain from being overly emotional in all aspects. He was the most loving, joyful person on the planet, and he also... Struggled with depression and anger and a range of emotions. So together with drug abuse and the ups and downs that go along with that, there were some pretty stormy days for sure at home that were pretty hard to live with.
0: You mentioned that Tristan had dropped out of martial arts or stopped attending. And I found the story of taking your son to China, I think at age 15 or 16, To further his study of martial arts, really interesting, not only the accounts, of course, of the culture shock in which both of you went through in terms of living life in China, but how all of that translated for your son in his recovery.
1: That was something I will always be very proud of, really, is the creative problem solving that went into trying to find some sort of environment where my son could thrive Despite the fact that he was struggling with addiction and that there was absolutely no help to be found for him at home through the healthcare systems or the treatment centers, I ended up trying to tap into the one thing that he still loved, and that was martial arts. Even though he had started to lose interest in attending that at home, his passion remained always to be a master martial artist. When I was able to find a place that would take foreign students over in China, and it was very much like the Kung Fu kid only set in China, it gave him pause. He was not convinced right away. It was something he wanted to do, but it was also too good for him to pass up, even if it meant he had to give up drugs for a while. So that's what we did. We went over when he had just turned 16, and I stayed with him for the first five weeks there to make sure that it was a good place for him and he was safe and he was doing well and healthy. And it was the best possible place for him because he was doing something he loved. He was physically active eight hours a day, five days a week. He was surrounded by community of teenagers, early 20s, but who were all there for adventure and fitness. It gave him that period of time where he was able to grow and develop his brain without being impeded by drugs he still had and was showing some symptoms of addictive personalities and addictive character traits but he was able to do that drug free that it didn't impede his growth as much as when he was using drugs the other thing about him in china is it gave him a chance to be successful it gave him a chance to find the thing that he really connected with and experience what it felt to be really good at something and to shine and to be healthy. I knew he would always have that to come back to. He would always have that success no matter where else his addiction might take him in the future. He would have that to always to hold on to and come back to.
0: Kathy, you joined a support group so that you would have advice and people to lean on and there was an interesting quote when I was reading the book that I jotted down. Your job is to make sure he doesn't pull you down with him. Could you talk about that?
1: That quote actually comes from a friend of his counsellor. I got together with him to ask his advice about what I should be doing with Tristan. His advice mirrored everything else I had heard from all of the other experts and treatment centres, which was basically there's nothing that you can do for Tristan until he's ready. All you can do is try to save yourself. And in this case, he said, your job is not to be pulled down. At the time, I was not really ready to hear that. My kid was still a minor, and it was my job to save him in my mind. I would be pulled down as far as I needed to if it meant I could hold him up a little bit. So I did reach out to support groups, and the first support group that I found was not particularly effective for me. It was a group for parents who had kids who were at risk of drug abuse, I found that to be a very difficult group because we were all just very lost and worried and scared parents, and there wasn't a lot of hope to be found. There were just a lot of scary stories about where Tristan's substance abuse might lead him, and I found it very difficult. It wasn't until years later that I connected with a support group that changed My world and opened up opportunities, not just in terms of opportunities I could see for Tristan, but more importantly, the opportunities that I could see for myself as Tristan's mom, but also separate from Tristan, just as my own person. Support groups were a huge part of my journey and so many other parts of the journey. It was bumpy. It wasn't a straight route into finding the right support group.
0: It took six years to get Tristan to rehab, Because as you learned when you were investigating the rehab centers themselves, they have to want to go is what you were told.
1: That's right. And that was the thing that really not just frustrated me, but angered me was that a kid who is 15 years old in active addiction had been kicked out of three schools by that time for drug related charges was no longer showing any interest in the things that he had been passionate about. And this, kid got to make his own decisions around his health care, where I as a responsible mother had no say in what was for him. All he could do was drop out of school and end up on the streets or who knows what. To me, that remains something that really angers me. I don't know exactly what the answer is, but there absolutely needs to be some way that parents can get help for their kids when they are so clearly struggling. And one of the symptoms of drug addiction is they don't want to get better right away. They don't know how difficult it is for them. They just want to not feel bad. And the things that help them to not feel bad is using drugs. It takes years sometimes, but I don't think a teenager, a 15-year-old, 16-year-old teenager should have to go through years of the trauma of addiction before help can be offered to them. Tristan had some successes during those six years because I was fighting for him and I was advocating for him in the only way that I knew how outside of the systems of care. But there is nothing, and I know that even still today, there is nothing that a parent can do for a child who is not ready to seek help. I think that is one of the greatest shortfalls of our current system of care for people with mental health and addiction issues.
0: I wanted to go back to something that you said when Tristan decided he was ready for rehab, you then concentrated on your recovery.
1: It definitely ended up that way, but that was not intentional by a long shot. When Tristan entered recovery, he was fortunate enough to end up in a treatment center that worked very well for him and that provided a parent support group for the parents and I attended the parent support group because I was continuing to be a deeply invested parent. And I wanted to learn more about what was this recovery like for him? What was this treatment center like? What was gonna be expected? How can I be a better parent for Tristan in recovery? While that was my intentions. What happened is over time, I was sitting in this room regularly with all of these other parents or siblings or grandparents, but family members of people who had loved ones in addiction recovery. And it became clear that the conversation was not about our kids or our loved ones. The conversation was really about ourselves and how are we doing and how can we bring more purpose to our lives? How could we live the life that we want to leave separate from our children, regardless of what our children are doing, whether they are well or whether they are relapsing or whether they are using drugs? Or unfortunately, which happens with so many of us and happened with Tristan, Even if they happen to die from their addictions and what is the current drug toxicity crisis, there is a way to be well. And that was the focus of this particular support group that I entered into inadvertently when Tristan went into recovery. And it started me on what I think of as my own recovery journey. I had a lot of learning to do and a lot of healing to do after living with years of not just Tristan's addiction, but my older daughter struggled with addiction issues. Addiction has been part of our family story for generations. And there are so many things that I was not even aware of in terms of alternative methods of coping with things and healing and focusing on myself. I was just very much invested in Tristan's well-being to the point of completely ignoring my own. That was an unexpected experience of entering my own recovery journey, for which I'm very grateful. The skills that I learned focusing on myself during that time are the same skills that helped me to continue to breathe during the early months and years of grief after losing Tristan as well.
0: Your son kept journals and workbooks, which you talked about and share in the book, and they're very powerful stories. Reading those give you a a clearer understanding of what was happening.
1: They did, for sure. And it's a clear understanding that not every parent wants to have. I know many parents struggle with the idea of their son passes away, particularly after years of addiction. And you know that their life was not always easy. But do you really want to know the details? Do you open those journals and read them or do you not? I think that there are probably some arguments and debates either way, ethical or not. In my case, I didn't really feel like I had a choice because I had such a deep need to understand my son, good or bad and everything in between. I just really needed to know what his life was like, what his experiences were like. There were lots of parts of his journals that were absolutely joyful because as I said, he brought a lot of joy to people and he was passionate about all of the things he was passionate about. Recovery was one of them. He was so proud of himself in recovery and he helped so many people. And I read about those parts as well, but there was trauma in his journals. He wrote about trauma that he had experienced that I was not aware of. He wrote about trauma that he perpetuated in his addiction that I was not aware of. Those stories were both extremely difficult for me to hear, but also eventually helped me to understand my son in a more complete way and to understand how his addiction shaped his life. I think what a lot of us tend to do who have loved ones in addiction is to separate them from their addictions. We say, oh, his bad behavior, that's the addiction happening, not him. And while that's true on so many levels, because they would not behave that way if they were not in addiction... The reality is they don't have the privilege of separating themselves from their own story. Whether they were in addiction or not, they had those thoughts, they had those experiences, they have the consequences of their actions, and they have to continue to live with them. And part of what really changed me after coming to terms with some of Tristan's more traumatic stories was how tremendously strong he was in pulling himself out of addiction and trying to reverse the damage, stop the damage and make reparations for it where he could. I understood Tristan's strength and his efforts so much better by understanding where he was coming from.
0: After Tristan passed away, there's a chapter on you traveling, as you say in the book, to be alone with your pain. Was that therapeutic?
1: There's something romantic about the notion of traveling for healing. Probably a part of me... Was hoping for that, you know, these movies, people go away and they have their healing experiences and they come back transformed. It wasn't really so much that way for me. I really did feel like a sickly cat just running away into the woods to die without witness. For me, the biggest draw was my need to be alone with my pain because I didn't know how to express my pain around other people without hurting them. And I just wanted to be able to feel my grief without worrying what other people felt about it. I don't know, honestly, if it was super therapeutic, but it gave me the space I needed so that time could work its healing powers without me being distracted by too many other things pulling at my time or my energies. For me, it worked, but I think it was more time that was therapeutic and giving me space than the actual traveling itself.
0: Through this whole experience, Kathy, what would be your advice to families who are struggling with addiction?
1: Definitely to reach out. I would really encourage people to know that they are not alone. There are so many families that are wrestling with addiction and that there are people who will not judge you, who will understand your story and support you through it without judgment. You just need to reach out to find them. I think there are many more support opportunities now than there were when I was first struggling with it. There are many different kinds of support groups. So if you don't find the one that works first time around, there's counseling, therapists, friends, there's books to read. There's all sorts of ways to feel connected. My advice would be for people to know that they do not have to be alone in this that people who have not experienced it directly cannot really understand what it's like. So I would encourage them to reach out to people who understand either professionally or through lived experience.
0: Thanks to Kathy Wagner, author of Here With You, and David Norwell, author of A Complex Coast, for being with us on this edition of Today in BC's Made in BC Book Club. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google Podcasts.
2: From the latest community news to informative, entertaining reads for travelers and the cannabis curious, just visit your local Black Press Media community newspaper website to sign up today.